with my, me, your host, L. Lathan. No one is, is in this episode. Sorry if you're looking for a discussion with two people. It's not going to happen on this one. But I will give you a lot of information. Probably too much information. First, I want to say, I hope you have listened to the last episode. I thought it was a really good one from August 31st. Hit me with the next shot. I hope you listened to that and you enjoyed it and you read all the sources. I work really hard, guys, on getting getting these sources together and putting them in. It doesn't it takes a long time. That's part of the, like the worst part of posting is putting those in. And I hope you're actually reading that information cuz it's super important. Especially now when so much is not allowed. So Getting into it, uh, this is the perfect time for me to have a podcast because brand new news was today that YouTube has implemented a policy, and I'll read over it, uh, that it, it says it, it's called Managing Harmful Vaccine Content on YouTube, and it's a blog post, and I'll leave it in the show notes. September 29th, 2021, which is today. That happens to be today, which is Wednesday. And it says, we're expanding our medical misinformation policies on YouTube with new guidelines on vaccines. Yay! Thanks, said a lot of fake liberals, but not me and not anyone I know. But moving forward, I do want to explain that there was a live stream on Saturday, it did exist, of um, the the Political Matrix team and myself, Emmanuel, Chris, obviously Marcus, who's the host, and I gave a lot of information there that a lot of people have not seen or heard from because it was immediately taken down by YouTube the next day, or Alphabet, whatever, Google. They deemed it not appropriate for their website, which is unfortunate. I only got to watch it back a little bit, and um, I hope that I can cover everything I covered in that episode. I don't know if I will be able to. Maybe I'll cover a little bit more. But what I did that I think was did attribute to that especially with the news today, (laughs) I questioned the policy of the vaccines in so much that I talked about who's liable. No one, pretty much. If anything happens and you you get the shot at your work and then something happens, uh, nobody's really responsible. There is a workers' comp case for vaccines, uh, but there's not a lot you can take from that in terms of liability 
And then uh, there is a vaccine injury fund, but it doesn't really apply to this countermeasures one that's part of the PrEP Act, which I'll get into in a moment. And also, I'm just really bereft. <laughs> uh, I talked about the experimentation of from the U.S. government on infants, on children, and foster children specifically, and how the NIH was involved in, in testing AIDS drugs on foster children. So that was unfortunate for everyone involved, but mainly for the children. Uh, a few died. Um, but they're not, there's no correlation. Don't worry about it. Um, and now I gotta go to DuckDuckGo because I got an article and I read it on that program. So yeah, there's that information. There's, um, I talked about the protests all over the world. I didn't discuss it too much. And I said at one point that the vaccine by the very definition that they use, that used to be the definition of vaccine because they changed it. They changed everything. They changed the um, definition of herd immunity as well. But um, definition of vaccine changed and I said that it's not a vaccination by the actual, it's not a vaccine by the definition of the original vaccine. And I'm sure that didn't help it as well in terms of getting me getting us in trouble. And I feel really bad about what happened, but now that this has happened, I'm like, you know what? It was just a matter of time, you know? And, you know, if you guys remember that I brought up the segment four of Event 201 back in the day, that's what this is. This is them cracking down on misinformation. They did the same thing with the lab leak, and look where that got us. Like, so much information comes out from the mainstream media saying that the lab leak could have happened, like it could have escaped escaped from a lab, the virus. But now, you know, it'll be months later until we have enough info out there in the mainstream about side effects, adverse effects on children whom are in trials and are the next in line to receive the, the shot, the Pfizer one. Uh, five to 11 year olds. So I know that this has a lot to do with the children um, having that shot coming up. They don't want to ruin that. They won't stop until everyone is vaccinated. I don't know if I'm glad about it, but this podcast isn't the most popular fucking podcast in the world. So it's kind of under their radar. So at least I can get some information out. Again, about some of this stuff and people actually listen to it at least people I know and everything so that's good but other than that it's just like what the fuck you know like we can't live this way you know it's just not right okay so let's go ahead and read this blog post from YouTube on YouTube well, it's not even on YouTube. It's blog.youtube. No one ever goes there, but okay. Um, crafting policy. Oh, wait. They have to brag about their 
their banning of things. And they say, since last year, we've removed over 130,000 videos for violating our COVID-19 vaccine policies. Crafting policy around medical misinformation, however you define that, that's me, not them, comes charged with inherent challenges and trade-offs. Scientific understanding evolves, of course. They gotta, you know, let themselves off the hook and they're the CDC and everybody else. As new research emerges and first-hand personal experience regularly plays a powerful role in online discourse. Vaccines in particular have been a source of fierce debate over the years despite consistent guidance from health authorities about their effectiveness. Today, we are expanding our medical misinformation policies on YouTube with new guidelines, and they, they reference them here, so maybe I should check those out and read them for you. I'll catch that. Um, on currently administered vaccines that are approved and confirmed to be safe and effective by local health authorities and the WHO. I got a story about the WHO pretty soon too. That's going to be fun. Our community guidelines ignore the plane because you know I live in a, my studio is actually in a one bedroom apartment in Hollywood. Very exciting. Not in a garage or anything because I don't have a house because I'm poor. All right, moving on. Our community guidelines already prohibit certain types of medical misinformation. We're lo we've long removed content that promotes health helpful. Sorry, I accidentally said that. Harmful remedies, such as saying drinking turpentine can cure diseases. Who the fuck is saying that right now? At the onset of COVID-19, we built on these policies with the when the pandemic hit and worked with experts to develop 10 new policies around COVID-19 and medical misinformation. I'm not reading that one. Since last year, we've removed over 130,000 videos for violating our COVID-19 vaccine policies. Throughout this work, work, <laughs> an AI does it. Like, y'all don't do it. Okay, work, all right. Um, we learned important lessons about how to design and enforce nuanced, nuanced, sure Jan, sure, uh, medical misinformation policies at scale. Working closely with health authorities, we looked to balance our commitment to an on open platform with the need to remove egregious harmful content to the big pharma. They don't say that, but that's who they're talking about. It's harmful to them and their profits. It's not harmful to anyone else it, to have truth about what's going on. You know, there will be some videos and stuff that are having misinformation. Yes, that is always the case. And that should be case by case. People should be looked at and evaluated that way. And if they don't have any sources to back up their information, go ahead. But People like myself have information with them. They are reading off an article from the fucking government most of the time. And you just can't willy-nilly get rid of them. It's just not fair. Anyway, working closely with health authorities, we look to balance our commitment to an open platform the need, the, with the need to remove egregious harmful content. 
We've steadily seen false claims about the coronavirus vaccine spill over into misinformation about vaccines in general, and we're now at a point where it is more important than ever to expand the work we started with COVID-19 to other vaccines. Specifically, content that falsely alleges that approved vaccines are dangerous and cause chronic health effects, claims that Vaccines do not reduce transmission or contraction of disease. Okay, one, that's the COVID-19 vaccine, and it doesn't reduce transmission because there are many breakthrough cases, and there are situations where even the vaccinated are like, oh, so scared that they have to wear a mask in the company of other vaccinated people. So clearly, that is a, a worry for them vaccine for these children as soon as possible. On the other hand, we absolutely want to do the due diligence of the clinical trials of the scientific review to make sure when those vaccines are delivered to our children that they are safe and effective. We heard just over the weekend that we anticipate to see the data to the FDA, I hope within days. The FDA will absolutely be addressing those data with urgency and as soon as they give their authorization, if that's what they choose to do, um, and we expect that they will, then the CDC will absolutely absolutely be giving its recommendations soon thereafter that. I know it's also complicated, but no matter what happens there, it still leaves a lot of really little kids, and it still leaves a lot of elderly people and underlying condition people who we're all, if we're not crazy, concerned about, and that means there are masks here and there and everywhere. That's Shepard Smith. Are masks with us for a long, long time, years, forever? Well, you know, <laughs> I think the really important thing to emphasize here is the best way you can protect people with underlying immunosuppression and people who are unable to get vaccinated is to get vaccines yourself to surround them by people who are vaccinated which puts them at much lower risk of disease what we do know um, right now from the delta variant is for people who have had two doses of the vaccine they can still contract it from the vaccinated people even if everyone around them is vaccinated they are still at much lower risk of getting the disease, which means they still have a chance of getting the disease from the vaccinated people, which also is a, a blow to the vaccine mandates. So, I don't know, man. Oh, yeah, there was a hearing in, on Afghanistan, the withdrawal of Afghanistan. And that's fucking bullshit. Because, if anything, we should be having a hearing about that, you know. When they killed 10 civilians, that was some shit. That should be something that they're, somebody's on trial for more than anything. Anyway, getting back to this ridiculous blog, it says more here. This would include content that falsely says that approved vaccines cause autism, cancer or infertility or that substances and vaccines can track those who receive them. Nobody's really saying that anymore. I don't know anyone who's saying that. Our policies not only cover specific routine immunizations like for measles or hepatitis B but also apply to general statements about vaccines. As with our COVID guidelines, we con consulted with local and international health organizations and experts in developing these policies. For example, our new guidance on vaccine side effects maps to 
public vaccine resources provided by health authorities and backed by medical consensus. These policy changes will go into effect today. And as with any significant update, it will take time for our systems to fully ramp up enforcement. There are ex important exceptions to our new guidelines. Given the importance of public discussion and debate to the scientific process, we will continue to allow content about vaccine policies, new vaccine trials, and historical vaccine successes or failures on YouTube, except mine. Personal testimonials relating to vaccines will also be allowed so long as the video doesn't violate other community guidelines or the channel doesn't show a pattern of promoting vaccine hesitancy. All this complements our ongoing work to raise up authoritative health information on our platform and connect people with credible quality health content and sources. Today's policy update is an important step to address vaccine and health misinformation on our platform and will continue to invest across the board in the policies and products that bring high quality information to our viewers and the entire YouTube community. So now I'm going to go to the vaccine misinformation policy as it stands. And this is not going to infuriate me at all, I'm sure. Let's go. YouTube doesn't allow content that poses a serious risk of egregious harm by spreading mis medical misinformation about currently administered vaccines that are approved, confirmed, and confirmed to be safe and effective by local health authorities and by the WHO or the World Health Organization. This is limited to content that contradicts local health authorities or the WHO's guidance on vaccine safety, efficacy, and ingredients. So you just believe whatever they say. So even if they lie and they get caught lying, it doesn't matter because they're the health authorities. It's whatever. I guess. Okay. What this policy means for you. If you're posting content, don't post content on YouTube. If it includes harmful misinformation, how do I decide if it's harmful? How do you decide if it's harmful? What is harmful to you may not be harmful to me because I see people as thinking people and not as, you know, slaves to the system. So they aren't going to be affected by everything that I say and offended, you know, but you may see that differently as a, an authority about currently approved and administered vaccines on any of the following. Would I also like, I would also like to add that there is no approved vaccine by the FDA except comorbidity, and comorbidity is not the one that people are taking a lot now. <laughs> and the Pfizer vaccine itself that's under the EUA is not the same as an approved vaccine. It's still not approved for the 16, I mean, sorry, the 12 and up. Is that correct? 12 to 17? Yeah, and then 17, and then 16 and up is the one that's under comorbidity. It's very confusing. But anyways. Vaccine safety content. Oh, content alleging that vaccines cause chronic side effects outside of rare side effects that are recognized by health authorities. So, let me guess. 
swollen testicles? Like, is that what it is? Is that why she said that? Is that why she she wrote that on Twitter? Is this all just... Was that like an Alex Jones thing, but like the other side of it? Like, where they just get a celebrity to, to write something stupid or their manager does it? And then everybody has to be punished for this thing that they wrote? What is that about? You know what I'm saying? I wonder. Efficacy of vaccines. Content claiming that vaccines do not reduce transmission or contraction of disease. They don't! And they admit it! I just played a clip where she admitted that they don't stop the transmission. They lower the risk. Lowering the risk is not the same as completely reducing the transmission of the disease. Which is evident in Israel. Like, there are so many cases of, of breakthrough infections. Like, literally, that's a problem in Israel. It's a problem in the UK as well. It's not as much of a problem here. I don't know why. I don't know why. I'm not going to speculate. But, or it's being covered. I don't know. Or the definition of unvaccinated is very, like, vague and everything. It's like one dose, whatever. Fully vaccinated after two months or whatever. Like, or two weeks. I don't even remember. Two weeks after the six months. Uh, whatever. You know, they get vaccinated, but it's within the time frame after they got vaccinated. So they're still vaccinated. They're fully vaccinated, but they're not fully vaccinated according to the definition from the health authorities. So that really helps them in determining, oh, it's like 95% unvaccinated in this specific case, in this place. But in Massachusetts, it's like 70, 80% or something like that. It's, it's so different. So, you know, it just, it's all about the definition of unvaccinated and all that stuff. And like, there's 80 year olds getting sick and stuff. There's all kinds of weird shit going on. So, I don't know. Efficacy? There's not much efficacy. We saw it wane. Why do you need boosters if it, if it actually reduces the transmission of the disease? Why do you need boosters? Tell me, please. I would like to know. If that's not true, which it has been true for a while, and the CDC director herself, I could get that clip for you, where she said more viral load, that they have more viral load in vaccinated people than in unvaccinated. I'll see if I can find that, if YouTube will let me. They probably won't. Rich CDC director, I'm sure that's misinformation. Let's just listen to her, fuck it. <laughs> let me skip. She says a lot of stupid shit. But what I think you just said is there was concern that over time that the protection would wane against severe illness and death even. That essentially in some ways the two doses wouldn't be good enough anymore. That's exactly right. So we're starting to see waning in infection. We think that that may result soon in waning in severe disease and outcome. We certainly don't want to see that here. And so that's why we're planning now to get ahead of it before that happens. One of the biggest problems with the Delta variant, as you well know, is that even for vaccinated people, we now know you can get a breakthrough infection and you could be spreading it even if you don't feel sick and you have no symptoms, which is one reason we've had this explosive growth in COVID cases this summer. So, so here's my question. Is there hope, or better yet, data, that getting this third booster shot could actually prevent transmission? 
So there's actually hope. We don't have data yet. We do know that we don't the have that. levels of protection, certainly in the alpha variant, um, resulted in less transmission. And we have not yet seen the data, but we are hopeful that the um, booster will not only protect you, give you a higher level of protection, not just against the Delta variant, but against a broad range of variants, but it might also decrease the level of virus that you have and make it less transmissible if you happen to be it a breather. If the protection after the first two shots fades, then presumably the third shot's protection fades too. It's the exact same shot. So do you anticipate this being regular boosters? You know, I don't think we know that to right now. What I will say is there's numerous vaccines where we have two primes of a series and then a later booster, and we don't need a boost after that. The hepatitis B vaccine would be one example. So I think we still obviously need to continue to follow the science. We need to see what happens with further variants and whether um, we have further variants here. But there is no um, science. But right now we're, we're taking this one step at a time. We know we need a boost now, and we will continue to follow the science. But I I don't think it's a given that they, we will be doing this, you know, continuously. Oh, you know that there has been criticism both abroad and also by some doctors here in the U.S. who say that getting a third booster shot is unnecessary and something of a luxury item when you look around the world and many people have not even had their... And then they do that whole thing where it's like vaccine equity, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there you go. It's like they don't know <laughs> if the booster is going to help. And it is waning. She admits that there's waning efficacy here. What do you what do you want from me, YouTube? And that's from your platform. You're gonna take that video down? I doubt it. Oh, okay. So YouTube is full of shit, as usual. Okay, moving on from efficacy of vaccines. I think I've proven my point that, you know, even they admit the CDC director, the health authority admits that there's a waning uh, transmissibility, uh, not transmissibility, there's waning effectiveness of the vaccine itself. It's waning. It's not helping prevent breakthrough infections. There's more and more now than before. Um, moving on. Ingredients in vaccines. Content misrepresenting the substances contained in vaccines. So is this for the graphene oxide people? I guess it's for those people. I haven't engaged in that debate, so I don't know. Examples. Here are some examples of content that's not allowed on YouTube. Claims that vaccines cause chronic side effects such as cancer, diabetes, other chronic side effects. Nobody's saying that, bitch. They're saying myocarditis because there's actual data showing that people are getting myocarditis. Nothing about diabetes, nothing about cancer. I don't know where the fuck that is coming from, but it ain't from us. Claims that vaccines do not reduce risk, reduce risk of contracting illness. In this case, they do not do that. And we have seen and CDC director Rochelle Walensky say that multiple times. And even Fauci has said it. I don't want to play him because he's a troll and I don't like to hear him. So you'll just have to imagine his voice right now. Claims that vaccines contain substances that are not on the vaccine ingredients list, such as biological matter that from fetuses, e.g. fetal tissue, fetal cell lines, or animal byproducts. Well, okay. 
a lot of vaccines do have fetal tissue, so that's weird, but alright. Maybe not this specific RNA one, mRNA one, but, you know, that has been a thing if we're talking about all vaccines, so I don't know what that means. Uh, claims that vac vaccines contain substances or devices meant to track or identify those who've received them. See, you know what? No one's saying that anymore. They already said that before. You had your chance to get rid of those videos. You probably already did. So I don't know why you had to put that in there except to just be like, look at these stupid conspiracy theories. Well, that isn't a conspiracy theory that's really holding a lot of weight right now. So I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Claims that vaccines alter a person's genetic makeup. Um, I'm not getting into that one. Um, I'll let the scientists deal with that one. Claims that the MR MMR vaccine causes autism. I'm sure in some cases, in rare cases, I don't know exactly the percentage. I'm sure there have been instances where autism has arisen from or been triggered by a vaccine. I don't know exactly how that works or, or anything about it. But I would not be surprised if there was an instance of that happening and maybe it was blown out of proportion or maybe maybe there is weight to it and that's why they don't want you to talk about it. I don't know. I don't know enough about that subject. I'm not getting into it. I've never known anything about autism other than, you know, you can be on the spectrum and Asperger was a Nazi. That's all I know. <laughs> that's all I know. And that's why they don't say Asperger's. I'll give the PC people that one, honestly. I wouldn't want to have a condition named after a, a Nazi either. It's sad that a lot of Nazis do find things out or have things named after them, but it is what it is. Claims that vaccines are part of a depopulation agenda? Oh, damn. Okay, that's up my alley, I guess. Uh, well, what would you call it when there are so many errors made? And one, you don't even know when it how it originated. It, it seems like it's from a lab sometimes. It seems like it's from something else. It just depends. And it involves Bill Gates a lot. Bill Gates is involved and Klaus is involved. Klaus Schwab. A lot of people are making a lot of money from this and people who are connected to the eugenics kind of situation are making a lot of, uh, are getting a lot of press and getting a lot of love out of this is all I'm saying. And people who said there's a next pandemic and the next one, you know, they're, they're of the depopulation agenda kind of thing. They like it. They like the idea of lowering the population. They didn't achieve it, because I think we're still at 332 million now, so it's not like much happened in the world to to get us closer. I mean, not in the world, in this U.S., in the U.S. Let's see for the, the world, though, because... So, let's see what's the deal with the world. Let's see what we have here. Like, they want to get it down to 500 mil, right? They have a long way to go. Because we are now at 
705, 707. It just keeps going up. So I don't think it's working in their favor if there is a depopulation agenda. Luckily, it's not being, it's not happening. So I would probably say that the depopulation agenda idea is probably not correct at the moment. It could change, anything's possible. But I think the main idea right now is the lockstep situation where you just get authoritarian control over everything and just like YouTube is doing this authoritarian shit, you know, the government will do that across the board and we see it in the mandates, the vaccine mandates and everything and it's just sad to see. But anyway, moving on. Claims that the flu vaccine causes chronic side effects such as infertility. I don't know about that, but like if a doctor is claiming that and they have evidence, why shouldn't they have a video about it? I don't see any problem with that. Claims that the HPV vaccine causes chronic side effects such as paralysis. What is with this specific shit that they're mentioning? Like, how many videos were about that already? Like, I don't remember seeing anything like that. And I would assume that they'd have information to back up whatever statements they were making. But, you know, I don't know. Educational, scientific, artistic, or testimonial content. YouTube may allow content that violates the misinformation policies noted on this page if that content includes additional context in the video, audio, title, or description. This is not a free pass to promote misinformation. Okay. Additional content may include counter countervailing views from local health authorities or medical experts. <sighs> Plain again. We may also make exceptions if the purpose of the content is to condemn, dispute, or satirize misinformation that violates our policies. We may also make exceptions for content showing an open public forum, like a protest or public hearing, provided by content, provided the content does not aim to promote misinformation that violates our policies. Basically, this is for the corporate media. It's like, we got you, boo. Don't worry. You can still do your shit. Still do your propaganda. It's fine. As long as you're on the right side. We don't care. Do it. And then satirizing, does that apply to people who satirize this bullshit? Because <laughs> I would like to see some satire of this. And I hope to. YouTube also believes people should be able to share their own experiences, including personal experiences with vaccinations. That means we may make exceptions for content in which creators describe first-hand experiences from themselves or their family. At the same time, we recognize that there is a difference between sharing personal experiences and promoting misinformation about vaccines. To address this balance, we will still remove content or channels if they include other vi policy violations or demonstrate a pattern of promoting vaccine misinformation. What happens if content violates this policy? If your content violates this policy, we'll remove the content and send you an email to let you know. If this is your first time violating our community guidelines, you'll likely get a warning with no penalty to your channel. If it is not, you we may issue a strike against your channel. If you get it, if you get three strikes within 90 days, your channel will be terminated. 
you can learn more about our strike system here. We may terminate your channel or account for related violations of the community guidelines or terms of service. We may also terminate your channel or account after a single case of severe abuse or when the channel is dedicated to a policy violation. You can learn more about channel or account terminations here. And then they just lead you to World Health Organization stuff and CDC stuff. Again, CDC, which admits there's waning efficacy with the Pfizer vaccine. Specifically that one, too, because you don't hear as much about the waning efficacy of the Moderna. And I, I watched, like, a report about that where someone was explaining it. And that it was a larger dose that was given with the Moderna than with the Pfizer. And that might be contributing to its efficacy lasting longer. Seemingly, you know. Take everything with a grain of salt, you know. But anyway, that's what YouTube wants to do. I guess we should go move on to who because they were mentioned. And they're in the news today, so or yesterday. So this is from the Globe and Mail. So now I'm on the Who story. Alright, let's go. Back in. So the Globe and Mail came out with this article, and I found it on the Twitter. It's from yesterday, September 28th, 2021. And it was very illuminating, I must say. WHO employees perpetrated sexual crimes in Democratic Republic of the Congo during Ebola outbreak, report alleges. So there was an independent uh, investigation of the WHO that the WHO brought up forth on itself, brought upon itself, which is all very strange. Um, this is after all this UN shit from before where they had creepy people in that organization, aid workers and stuff. Well, this one is like an extension of that and includes the World Health Organization. So anyway, at least 21 employees of the World Health Organization allegedly committed rape, sexual abuse, or sexual exploitation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo during an Ebola outbreak from 2018 to 2020, an official investigation has found. The employees, including many who promised jobs to vulnerable women and girls in exchange for sex, ranged from security guards and drivers to senior doctors, consultants, and epidemiologists, both Congolese and foreigners, according to the final report of a year-long independent review commissioned by the WHO. In total, 84 incidents of sexual abuse and exploitation in the Ebola zone were reported, with victims as young as 13. They buried that in this article, by the way. You don't hear anything more about that. And you're like, huh, okay, some Epstein shit going on. There were nine rape allegations among the recorded incidents. Some of the WHO employees even administered abortion pills to their victims when they became pregnant, the report found. Then Tedros had to come out and be like, 
I'm so sorry this happened. We're gonna take care of everything. But then we go to this part where it says, one of the sexual abuse allegations was known within the WHO as early as May 2nd, 2019, according to emails uncovered by the investigation. Yet senior WHO staff did not launch an investigation or even seek further information at the time because they decided the complainant was not a beneficiary of WHO services. And then he says it's inexcusable. I agree, you should resign. And then of the 21 employees identified by the investigators, four were still working for the United Nations Health Agency this month. Their contracts have now been terminated, Dr. Tedros said. All 21 have been banned from future WHO employment and other UN agencies will be notified about them, he said. The WHO is also sending evidence of the rapes to the authorities in the DRC and the home countries of the alleged perpetrators. Evidence? What the fuck does that mean? That's weird. In addition, two of the agency's senior staff have been replaced on have been re, have been placed on administrative lead, leave for failing to take proper. In addition, two of the agency's senior staff have been replaced. God damn it! In addition, two of the agency's senior staff have been placed on administrative leave for failing to take proper action in response to sexual abuse complaints and others are being investigated. Then he says some other shit and we're just not going to listen to it because I don't want to hear it. The victims believe the WHO employees would have impunity for their abuses, the report found. While the investigation found 75 alleged victims of abuse, there was a total absence of reports of sexual exploitation and abuse at the institutional level during the reporting period, the report says. The consequences of reporting may be perceived as too negative compared to any benefit it would bring. During the Ebola outbreak, the WHO was completely unprepared to deal with the risks of sexual exploitation and abuse, the report says. Among the many cases, it describes one of an expatriate WHO epidemiologist who exploited a young nurse's de desperation for a better paying job. He told her she had to become his girlfriend to get it. The report says she rejected his advances and did not get the job. Another expatriate ep epidemiologist repeatedly told a female employee that he would get her fired if she refused to have sex with him. When she finally gave in to the threats and became pregnant, he gave her abortion pills, the report says. The, the abuses were first reported in September 2020 by journalists from the New Humanitarian and the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Their investigation, citing reports by 51 women, said the sexual abuse and exploitation was perpetrated by men from the WHO and other aid agencies, including UNICEF, Oxfam, World Vision, and Médecins Sans Frontières. I do not speak French, so that did not sound right, but you get the point. Medicine Sans Frontier. 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 Medicine Without Borders? I don't know. The. Or Doctors Without Borders in France, probably. The WHO requested an investigation by an independent commission headed by Achitu Mindutu, a. I totally butchered his name. Mindutu, a former cabinet minister in Niger, and Julien Lussange, a human rights activist in the DRC. 
The co-chairs appointed three other members, including Carol Desette, a Canadian expert on women's rights and sexual abuse. Paula Donovan, co-director of the of independent group AIDS Free World and its Code Blue campaign, which seeks an end to impunity for sexual no offenses. I almost said nonsense, sorry. By UN personnel said the WHO should not have been allowed to shoot, choose experts to investigate itself for criminal wrongdoing. I agree. The WHO is still deciding whether, when, or in which cases to alert police and courts, she said in a statement Tuesday. This is not justice for victims. The UN's member governments must immediately order all UN bureaucrats to step away and allow a bona fide criminal investigation to commence. So that's the story on the WHO. So I guess I'll get to the information that I shared on the live stream with the political matrix, which we can't like do this shit anymore. So that's fun. Um, one, I guess I'll just explain, cause I was talking about employer liability for the vaccine side effects. And this is from July 30th, 2021. This article explains it a little bit. It's from a weird website I've never heard of, mondac.com. It's probably just one of those random websites about certain things. And I just, you know, it's it's not well known. <laughs> but it's, it's not a specifically biased website or anything. But this information is interesting in it. So it says here, as employers encourage or require employees to obtain a COVID-19 vaccine, they should be aware of OSHA regarding, uh, this is before it was mandated for everyone, uh, over a hundred employers. Just so you know. Before the, the decree by the president. They should be aware of OSHA regarding obligations and potential workers' compensation liability. Though OSHA has yet to revise its COVID-19 guidance in response to the latest CDC recommendations, well, it has now, it has revised its position regarding the recording of injury or illness resulting from the vaccine. Until now, OSHA required an employer to record and this is from before. This I remember this news back in the day. Rec uh, record uh, an adverse reaction when the vaccine was required for employees and the injury or illness otherwise met the recording criteria work-related. A new case and meets one or oh more of the general recording material. OSHA has revised has reversed course and announced that it will not re require recording adverse reactions until at least May 2022, people. They are not going to record anything until May 2022. This is so fucked up. Irrespective of whether the employer requires the vaccine as a condition of employment, in its revised COVID-19 facts, FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions, OSHA states, DOL, Department of Labor, and OSHA 
as well as other federal agencies, are working diligently to encourage COVID-19 vaccinations. OSHA does not wish to have any appearance of discouraging workers from receiving COVID-19 vaccination and also does not wish to disincentivize employers' vaccination efforts. As a result, OSHA will not enforce 29 CFR 1904's recording requirements to require any employers to record worker side effects from COVID-19 vaccination through May 2022. We will reevaluate the agency's position at that time to determine the best course of action moving forward. And again, this article likes this. But it also led me to another article because there is a workers' compensation law, but it's not clear. And it's from 1934, the Ohio Supreme Court in the Spicer Manufacturing Company versus Tucker. An employee's death resulted from a smallpox vaccination and was covered under the Workers' Compensation Act. The decision was based primarily upon the fact that the employer required the employee to obtain the vaccine as a condition of continued employment. There's nothing after that, though. (laughs) And then um, it says here, the 2016 8th District Court of Appeals decision in Roizen versus Walgreen Company Roizen, an employee, had filed a workers' compensation claim after experiencing adverse symptoms from a pneumonia vaccine. The Court of Appeals held that the illness was not sustained in the course of employment since the vaccine was encouraged but not required by the employer. The Court of Appeals arrived at this conclusion despite the fact that the employees received the vaccine on the employer's premises during the employee's working hours. So I think in that regard, it could be workers' compensation according to... If we're going to go back to the 1900s, like we're doing in all this other shit, then 1934 also matters with that workers' comp case, which I'll also leave in the show notes for you to see. Then there is um, the PrEP Act. So, dear me. This is from Reuters, okay? So, legitimate sources, legitimate as they can get for mainstream, I guess. Reuters, black hole. Black hole for COVID-19 COVID vaccine injury claims by Jenna Green. A uh, six-minute read, but we're not going to need six minutes. Uh, this is from four months ago, so June 29, 2021. Everything changed after that, I'm sure, and none of this is relevant, except it is. Um, let's see here. I'm going to skip through and find the most interesting part. And she says she's not an anti-vaxxer, but she needs her questions answered, blah, blah, blah. Okay. We can assume a small number of people who got COVID-19 vaccinations suffered an injury as a direct result. The question is what to do about it. Since 1988, the government has run a special no-fault tribunal housed within the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. 
known colloquially as vaccine court, to handle injury claims for 16 common vaccines. Payouts, including attorney's fees, are funded by a 75% a 75 cent tax per vaccine. And then they say the $250,000 cap on awards for pain and suffering is too low. The proceedings often turn into drawn out contentious expert battles. The backlog of cases is substantial. We didn't know how good we had it, Maglio said. The vaccine court is not without problems, but it does work, and people do get compensation. That's some random lawyer. Uh, but that's not where COVID vaccine claims are being adjudicated. Instead, at least for the time being, they've been relegated to even more an even more obscure forum, the Countermeasure Injury Compensation Program, or CICP, run by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Oh, and I'm going to get to this other article from the actual government after this, so you guys understand. Um, a public affairs officer for the HRSA, which is part of the Department of Health and Human Services, did not respond to a request for comment. But uh, the lawyers involved in this article both agree that it's a black hole, this, this countermeasure in injury compensation program. The agency's website outline, outlines the parameters of the program, which is authorized by the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. In March 2020, then Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar added COVID claims to it. Coverage includes vaccines as well as injuries stemming from other countermeasures used to treat the virus, such as medications and devices. It's telling to look at the nine other public health emergencies and security dangers covered by the program, including Ebola, anthrax, Marburg, which is coming up again, and acute radiation syndrome. None of what you'd call common affections afflictions. And then there's COVID, where 180 million people in the U.S. have received at least one shot at this time. The program provides compensation for medical expenses, lost employment income, and survivor death benefits as the payer of last resort, covering only what remains unpaid or unpayable by other third parties, such as health insurance. Except historically, almost no one gets anything. Since the program's inception in 2010, only 29 claims have been paid, with an average payout of around $200,000. Ten additional claims won approval but were deemed ineligible for compensation. The other 452 claims, 91.4%, were denied. As of June 1st, the program reports that 869 cases are pending, but offers no further details. Given the lack of, say, current Zika or small, smallpox outbreaks, it's probably safe to assume that most of all, most or all, are COVID-related. One of the lawyers, Gendry, is not optimistic that they will that any will be approved because the vaccine is so new. There's no definitive research on injuries caused by the vaccine, she said which means that when the claims land on someone's desk at HRSA, that person can do their job and look at the research and everyone loses. 
The solution to her is obvious. Move the COVID claims to vaccine court. Cases there are decided by experienced special masters. The U.S. Justice Department already has a division of torts branch lawyers who focus on such litigation. And an experienced petitioner's bar knows how to tap medical experts to determine the likely cause of a post-vaccine injury. Bipartisan legislation is pending that would expedite the addition of new vaccines, including COVID-19, to the court. I believe this would be the best antidote to vaccine hesitancy, Maglio told me. It would still it would instill confidence that it, if something bad happened, you're going to be taken care of. So yeah, those that's that article, and I should say that uh, that was a lawyer, Maglio, Christopher, and Toll. A lawyer from Maglio to Christopher and Toll. Altum Maglio. Who litigated more vaccine related injury claims than any other in the United States. And who's Gentry? Renee Gentry, director of the Vaccine Injury Litigation Clinic at the George Washington University Law School. So those are two people who were in that field. Moving on, so in other news, like I wanted to explain the PREP Act because I found this on the website, phe.gov, public health emergency, a part of the U.S. Department, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and here's that information. So just to give you an idea of what it covers, the PREP Act. which means Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. And it it provides immunity to qualified individuals, including Big Pharma. (laughs) Anyway, um, when the secretary determines that a threat or condition constitutes a present or credible, credible risk of a future public health emergency, the secretary may issue a PREP Act declaration. And they did in this case. The declaration provides immunity from liability except for willful misconduct (laughs) for claims of loss caused by arising out of, relating to, or resulting from the administration of or use of covered countermeasures to, to diseases, threats, and conditions identified in the declaration. So it applies to licensed health professionals authorized to administer covered medical countermeasures under the law of the state where the countermeasure is administered and other individuals identified in the declaration by the Secretary of Health and Human Services to prescribe, dispense, or administer covered countermeasures, including the COVID-19 vaccine qualified persons. In March 2020, the Secretary issued a PREP Act declaration covering COVID-19 tests, drugs, and vaccines, providing liability protections to manufacturers, eh, distributors, states, localities, licensed healthcare professionals, and others identified by the Secretary qualified persons who administer COVID-19 countermeasures. The declaration has been attended, amended, 
The declaration has been amended several times to expand liability protections, including prior amendments to cover licensed healthcare professionals who cross state lines or state borders and federal response teams. In March 2020, the HHS Secretary issued a PrEP Act declaration covering COVID-19 tests, drugs, and vaccines, providing liability protections to manufacturers. Did I just read this? It basically says the same thing. I'm not going to say that all again. I don't know why they say that twice, but they do. <laughs> That's so fucking weird. Anyway. Under the PREP Act, a qualified person is a covered person, except for willful misconduct. A covered person is immune from lawsuits and liability under federal and state law with respect to all claims of loss for loss resulting from the administration of shit, the administration or use of a covered countermeasure, such as a COVID-19 vaccine. If they meet criteria stated in a declaration under the PREP Act, issued for the health emergency or threat and covered countermeasure. The seventh PREP Act amendment expands the list of professionals who are qualified to administer vaccines and are protected from liability as follows. Non-traditional licensed or certified health professionals, listed healthcare providers who are licensed or certified prescribe, <coughs> excuse me, dispense and or administer COVID-19 vaccines, previously active and recently retired professionals, any retired professional whose license or certification expired within the past five years to prescribe, dispense, and or administer COVID-19 vaccines in any state or U.S. territory so long as the license or certification was active and in good standing prior to, this, to the date it was inactive. Okay. Healthcare students. Any student who has proper training in administering vaccine from their school or training program and are under supervision by a currently practicing healthcare professional experienced in intramuscular injections. Impacts on state, local, tribal, and territorial health agencies. The PREP Act declaration amendments preempt requirements that would result in a qualified person being unable to prescribe, dispense, or administer vaccines as authorized by the state or U.S. territory. Licensing laws that are less restrictive than those in the declaration amendments are not preempted. States and U.S. territories determine authorized vaccinators in this jurisdiction. And then it says, you know, the PREP Act also provides for a countermeasure injury compensation program for certain individuals who sustain serious injuries or die from receiving the countermeasures. And we all know that's probably not going to be good for anyone. In other news, I did want to get to the NIH story. <laughs> Guess we're waiting until the end. Oh, I hope you have stuck with me this far. So, I found a little article about it from the NIH people. I don't know if this is NIH people, <laughs> but it's from their website. Anyway, so it explains what happened in the summary, summary that it has from Abstract, which is so much easier to get through than reading a whole article about it. 
So thankful for that. So this says, manufacturing mistrust. Issues in the controversy regarding foster children in the pediatric HIV AIDS clinical trials. This was posted... When was this posted? December 2009. Not that long ago. So abstract says, the use of foster children as subjects in the pediatric HIV AIDS clinical trials has been subject of media controversy, raising a range of ethical and social dimensions. Several unsettled issues and debates in research ethics underlie the controversy and the lack of consensus among professional researchers on these issues was neither adequately appreciated nor presented in media reports. These issues include, one, the tension between protecting subjects from research risk while allowing them access to the possible benefits of research, to the blurring of the potentially conflicting roles of investigator and physician and the boundaries between research and therapy, three, the adequacy of institutional review board oversight, and four, trust and the relationships among physicians, investigators, and industry. The media controversy about the pediatric HIV AIDS clinical trials can be seen as a means of manufacturing mistrust in healthcare research and social services that have not always met the needs and expectations of the public. In an era of emerging infections, hmm, it is critical to the public's health that people understand the role of rigorous and ethical research in the development of safe and effective care. Investigators, journalists, and the public need to become knowledgeable about major ethical issues in the conduct of research in order to engage in dialogue about balancing research risks and benefits and to be able to distinguish fact from distortion in an era of multiple and rapid transmission of information. So that doesn't really explain the problem. This is from the 90s or 89 to 91. All right, I'm going to go to CBS News because that's right here. All right, CBS News. May 4th, 2005. AIDS drug tested on foster kids. Government-funded researchers tested AIDS drugs on hundreds of foster children over the past two decades, often without providing them a basic protection afforded in federal law and required in some, by some states, an Associated Press review has found. The research funded by the National Institutes of Health spanned the country. It was most widespread in the 1990s as... Foster care agencies sought treatments for their HIV-infected children that weren't yet available in the marketplace. The practice ensured that foster children, mostly, mostly poor or minority, received care from world-class researchers at government expense, slowing their rate of death and extending their lives. But it also exposed a vulnerable population to the risks of medical research and drugs that were known to have serious side effects in adults and for which the safety for children was unknown. Sound familiar? <laughs> the research was conducted in at least seven states, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, New York, North Carolina, Colorado, and Texas, and involved more than four dozen different studies. The foster children ranged from infants, infants to late teens, according to interviews and government records. 
Several studies that enlisted foster children reported patients suffered side effects such as rashes, vomiting, and sharp drops in infection fighting blood cells as they tested antiretroviral antiretroviral drugs to suppress AIDS or other medicines to treat secondary infections. In one study, researchers reported a disturbing higher death rate among children who took higher doses of a drug. That study was unable to determine a safe and effective dosage. The government provided special protections for child wards in 1983. They required researchers and their oversight boards to appoint independent advocates for any foster child enrolled in a narrow class of studies that involved greater than minimal risk and lacked the promise of direct benefit. Some foster agencies required the protection regardless of risks and benefits. Advocates must be independent of the foster care and research agencies, have some understanding of medical issues, and act in the best interest of the child for the entirety of the research, the law states. However, researchers and foster agencies told AP that foster children in AIDS drug trials often weren't, very, weren't given such advocates even though research institutions many times promised to do so to gain access to the children. Illinois officials believe none of their nearly 200 foster children in AIDS studies got independent monitors, even though researchers signed a, a document guaranteeing the appointment of an advocate for each individual ward participating in the respective medical research. New York City could find records showing 142 less than a third of the 465 foster children in AIDS drugs trials got such monitors even though city policy required them. The city has asked an outside firm to investigate. Likewise, research facilities including Chicago's Children's Memorial Hospital and Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore going to get to them in a second, said they concluded that they didn't provide advocates for foster kids. Some states declined to participate in medical experiments. Tennessee said its foster care rules generally prohibit enlisting children in such trials. California requires a judge's order, and Wisconsin has absolutely never allowed, nor would we even consider, any clinical experiments with the children in our foster care system, spokeswoman Stephanie Marquis said. Officials estimated that 5% to 10% of the 13,878 children enrolled in pediatric AIDS studies funded by NIH since the late 1980s were in foster care. More than two dozen Illinois foster children remain in studies today, in 2005 apparently. Some foster children died during studies, but state or city agencies said they could find no records that any deaths were directly caused by experimental treatments. Researchers typically secured permission to enroll foster children through city or state agencies, and they frequently exempted themselves from appointing advocates by concluding the research carried minimal risk and the child would directly benefit because the drugs had already been tried in adults. 
Our position is that advocates weren't needed, said Marilyn Castaldi, spokeswoman for Columbia Presbyterian Medical, Hosp Medical Center in New York. If they decline to appoint advocates under the federal law, researchers and their oversight boards must conclude that the experimental treatment affords the same or better risk-benefit possibilities than alternate treatments already in the marketplace. They also must abide by any additional protections required by state and local authorities. Many of the states that enrolled foster children occurred after 1990 when the government approved using the drug AZT, an effective, not really, AIDS treatment for children. What? Arthur Kaplan, head of medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania, said advocates should have been appointed for all foster children because researchers felt the pressure of a medical crisis and knew there was great uncertainty as to how children would react to AIDS medications that were often toxic for adults. It is exactly that set of circumstances that made it absolutely mandatory to get those kids those advocates, he said. It is inexcusable that they wouldn't have an advocate for each one of those children. And then more talk, talk, talk. Those who made the decision say the research gave foster kids access to drugs they otherwise couldn't get, and they say they protected the children's interests by carefully explaining risks and benefits to state guardians, foster parents, and the children themselves. I understand the ethical dilemma surrounding the introduction of foster children into trials, said Dr. Mark Klein, a pediatric AIDS expert at Baylor College of Medicine. He enrolled some Texas foster kids in his studies and doesn't recall appointing advocates for them. To say as a group that foster children should be excluded from clinical trials would have meant excluding these children from the best available therapies at the time, he said. From an ethical perspective, I never thought that was a stand I could take. Mm -hmm. Illinois officials directly credit the decision to enroll HIV-positive foster kids with bringing about a decline in deaths from 40 between 1989 and 1995 to only 19 cents. NIH, the government health research agency that funded the studies, did not track researchers to determine if they appointed advocates. Instead, the decision was left to medical review boards made up of volunteers at each study site. A recent Institute of Medicine study concluded those institutional review boards were often overwhelmed, dominated by scientists, and not focused enough on patient protections. An ethicist who served 22 years on such boards said they lacked the resources to ensure the safety of foster children. Over the last century, over the last half century, IRBs have basically broken under the strain of some of the structural changes in research, said Gregory E. Pence, a University of Alabama, Birmingham bioethicist. The U.S. Office for Human Research Protections created to protect research participants under the infamous, after the infamous Tuskegee syphilis studies on black men is investigating the use of foster children AIDS research. The office declined to discuss the probe. NIH said it considers patient safety its top priority and awaits the outcome of the investigation. If we find that patient protections need further strengthening, 
we will take action to do so. John Burklow, spokesman for the organization, said, AP's review found that if children were old enough, usually between 5 and 10, they also were educated about the risks and asked to consent. Sometimes foster parents or biological parents were consulted, other times not. Also, I'm pretty sure a 5 or 10-year-old can't consent. And let's keep that in mind for the future. Our policy was to try and con contact the biological parents because it was fairly common when we got done, the foster kid would go back to the parents, said Dr. Ross McKinney, a pediatric AIDS expert at Duke University. Research and foster agencies declined to make foster ch parents or children in the drug trials available for interviews or to provide information about individual drug doses, dosages, side effects, or deaths, citing medical privacy laws. Oh, they mattered back then, huh? Other families who participated in the same drug trials told AP their children mostly benefited, but parents needed to carefully monitor potential side effects. Foster children, they said, needed the added protection of the independent advocate. There's some more information. Then it says, many studies that enlisted foster children involved early phase one and phase two research, the riskiest, to, to determine side effects and safe dosages to ch so children could begin taking adult cocktails, the powerful drug combinations that suppress AIDS but can cause bad reactions like rashes and organ damage. Some of those drugs were approved ultimately for children, such as Stativine, Stafudine, Stavudine, whatever the hell it's called. They always have weird names, such as Stavudine and Zidovidine. Other medicines were not. Illinois officials confirmed two or three foster children were approved to participate in a mid-1990s study of Dapsone. Researchers hoped the drug would prevent a pneumonia that afflicts AIDS patients. Researchers reported some children had to be taken off the drug because of serious toxicity. Others developed rashes and the rates of death and blood toxicity were significantly higher in children who took the medicine daily rather than weekly. At least 10 children died from a variety of causes, including four from blood poisoning, and researchers said they were unable to determine a safe, useful dosage. They said the deaths didn't appear to be directly attributable to Dapsone, but nonetheless were disturbing. An unexpected finding in our study was that overall morality while receiving the study drug was significantly higher in the daily Dapsone group. This finding remains unexplained, the researchers concluded. Another study including involving foster children in the 1990s treated children with different combinations of adult antiretroviral drugs. Among 52 children, there were 26 moderate to severe reactions, nearly all in infants. The side effects included rash, fever, and a major drop in infection fighting white blood cells. New York City officials defend the decision to enlist foster children en masse, saying there was a crisis in the early 1990s and research provided the best treatment possibilities. Nonetheless, they are changing their policy so they no longer give blanket permission to enroll children in pre-approved studies. We learned some things from our experience. 
said Elizabeth Roberts, Assistant Commissioner for Child and Family Health at the Administration for Children's Services. It is a more individualized review we will be conducting. Researchers likewise defend their work, saying they often sat with foster families to explain the risks and benefits and provided them literature and 24-hour phone numbers. We talk about it, then they come the next time. There is no rush, explained Dr. Ram Yogev, the chief pediatric AIDS researcher in Chicago, whose patients include a large number of foster children. Klein, the, sec- the, the Texas researcher, added, I never wanted a parent or guardian to ever say yes simply because they thought it was what I wanted them to do. I wanted it to be the right choice for them. But I think, oh, I think there is not any single right answer for any family. By John Solomon. AP. Sorry, I am losing my voice now. It's been a fun show. Fun show. And I can't find the original article, so that's fun. Um, so that's going to be CBS. So then we move on to, we're going to end here because I can't do it anymore because my voice is going to die. This article is from 2015. It's kind of old and nothing really different has happened, but I will share an update on it from a thread on Twitter. But you guys might not know, but there was a whole experiment that happened in, back in the day with Henrietta Lacks. And they got her... Wait, is this it? I should make sure that this is what I'm talking about. Nah. Let's just see what it is. <laughs> we'll just read it. Okay, this is a billion dollar lawsuit against John Hopkins University. You know, the university that has the Centers for Health Security, you know. Interesting. You know, which put on the event 201 and other exercises, just saying. So some shit's going on in the background, we'll just ignore it and end the show. Uh, Anyway, this article is from Baltimore CBS Local, so back to CBS. And it's John Hopkins University faces $1 billion lawsuit over STD study. I think this is the Henrietta Lacks thing, but let me say, let me see. Billion dollar lawsuit, hundreds of people, part of a partic- part of a horrific STD study, sue Johns Hopkins University. And also Rockefeller, but yeah, okay. Uh, nearly 800 former research subjects infected with sexually transmitted diseases in Guatemala. This is a Guatemala thing, yeah. Uh, are seeking justice. See, I wrote about both, or not wrote, I, I shared both articles, so I got a little confused there. Because I think he's also involved with Henrietta Lacks. (laughs) He, them, uh, John Hopkins is also involved in Henrietta Lacks. Oh yeah, that's another article from um, CBS. They used her cells. Henrietta Lacks cells. It is Johns Hopkins. Okay, we'll get back to that. The hospital, though. Okay, here we go. So nearly, yeah, like I said, uh, Christy Lieto has more on the ac- accusations and the denial. The government experiment happened more than 65 years ago. The victim's attorneys argue it's time to ret- right a terrible wrong, while Johns Hopkins says its hands are clean. So we're going to skip to the end because we don't have time for this shit. So the experiment came to light in 2012, prompting President Obama to apologize for the research. Johns Hopkins University said it did not initiate, pay for, or conduct the experiment. 
Doctors who were employers of Johns Hopkins went to NIH and served on NIH study committees in their capacity on behalf of the federal government, but not on behalf of Johns Hopkins, said Robert Matias, lead counsel for Johns Hopkins. Rob Matias represents Hopkins describing the suit with no merit and, we- and beyond its statute of limitations. In 2012, a federal judge dismissed a lawsuit against the U.S. government for the very same study. And the suit also names, they put this at the very end, of course, the Rockefeller Foundation and New York Pharmaceutical Company, Bristol Myers Squibb, in the, in, in the lawsuit. I don't know why they said suit twice, but they did. <laughs> it's a class action lawsuit from some people from Guatemala who were really pissed about what they did to them. Yeah. So there, that's that. And then we get to the Henrietta Lacks one, which is also Johns Hopkins, but the hospital. Henrietta lawsuit. Okay, I guess we're going to end here. Henrietta Lacks family to sue pharmaceutical companies continuing to use HeLa cells without her their permission. This is also from baltimore.cbslocal.com. This is from July 29, 2021, so it's pretty recent. Renowned civil rights attorney Ben Crump announced that he will be representing a Baltimore family in what could be an unprecedented lawsuit. His clients are descendants of Henrietta Lacks. Lacks cells were taken without her permission decades ago, and they are still being used for medical research today. The pharmaceutical corporations unethically and some may say illegally took her cells, her miraculous cells, without her knowledge nor permission, and they have manipulated her genetic material to this day, said Crump. Her family is here today to start the journey to right that wrong. In the mid-1900s, Henrietta Lacks went to Johns Hopkins Hospital to get treatment for cervical cancer. Hospital officials said when her cells were sent to a lab nearby for a biopsy, The doctor realized that instead of dying, her cells doubled every day. The cells were nicknamed HeLa cells. The cells played a significant role in medical research and advancements, but doctors never asked Lax or her family for permission to use the cells. Family has not received anything from that theft of her cells, and they treated her like a specimen, like a lab rat, like she wasn't human with no family, no babies, no husband that loved her, says Kimberly Lax, the granddaughter of Henrietta Lax. Johns Hopkins Medicine celebrates and honors the incredible contribution to to advances in biomedical research made possible by Henrietta Lacks, the institution said. Johns Hopkins never patented HeLa cells and therefore does not own rights to the HeLa cell line. Johns Hopkins also did not sell or profit from the discovery or distribution of HeLa cells. Attorney Chris Seeger said the team is not ruling out contacting Johns Hopkins as part of this lawsuit. He also said about a hundred other companies could be potential targets. We are doing our research and figuring out every pharmaceutical company that has made a product that has either used used the cells to build their products or commercialize it in some way or develop it so that that's a lot of companies, says Chris Seeger, an attorney who is also representing the family. Attorneys have said companies continue to use the cells today, and each time the cells are used, the clock on the statute of limitation restarts. So that's that article. So we're going to end there, I guess. Um, 
ending also saying that, you know, in order to combat all of this banning uh, from social media and websites like Google's, YouTube, just, you know, do your best to share as much information as you can as long as it's legit and if check yourself if it's not. Um, just share legitimate information whenever you can, whenever you see someone, you know, maybe have a conversation with someone on the street or whatever. And then maybe you'll find out that they, you have a lot more in common than you think. And that they're on the same boat than you, that you're in. And we're all going to sink together or we're going to swim together. It's all up to us. So sink or swim, guys. Uh, that's what I'm leaving you with. Thank you so much for listening. 